Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 41, Portugal. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed our last episode, which finally put a bow on the War of the Fourth Coalition, and then gave us one of the most famous international political summits in European history with the Peace of Tilsit, establishing a Franco-Russo alliance that, well, basically sent the rest of Europe into a full-blown panic while leaving Prussia utterly devastated, both physically and psychologically. Napoleon was at the height of his power, and in the summer of 1807, his empire had brought all of Northern and Central Europe to its knees. Through his alliances with friendly kingdoms and countries that he didn't control physically, namely Spain and now Russia, Napoleon exerted near universal control of the continent as he was quickly becoming, if he was not already, the most powerful man in the world. But, as they say, he couldn't have it all. Well, at least not yet. Little Portugal was off in the corner of Iberia, doing everything it could to evade Napoleon's grip on the continent, by continuing to trade with their longtime ally, Great Britain. With their strategically important access to the Atlantic Ocean, acting as a conduit to international trade from which British goods could flow to other European countries via underground smugglers, Napoleon knew that putting this decaying empire to bed once and for all would be imperative for him to truly become the master of Europe. And so, as the name of the episode suggests, we're going to devote the majority of our conversation to talk about the history of Portugal and why it was so critical to Napoleon's invasion plan to bring this last British ally under his watchful eye. Then, we'll get into the invasion itself, which, as a little spoiler alert, was not exactly as action-packed as some of the campaigns we've talked about already. But, well, we'll get to that shortly. Now, before we dive headlong into Portugal, let's catch up with Napoleon as he made his triumphal return to France after over 300 days away from his home country, the longest such absence at any point of his career, hoping to deal with the matters of state now that peace was finally achieved in the East. Arriving in Paris to great fanfare in August of 1807, Napoleon brought with him not only victories on the battlefield, but massive amounts of cash, artwork, gold, and other valuables from the conquered German states. Now, due to the high cost of the war, as well as the compounding issues of the continental system on France itself, the French economy had stagnated significantly while Napoleon was away. When he returned, though, he jump-started it like a massive bailout. News of the victories and the indemnities that would be coming in from some of the richest states in Germany meant that French buyers could now borrow and invest with massive confidence. Stocks being traded in 1800 at some 18 francs were now being traded at nearly 95 francs in early fall of 1807. This meant that the Bank of France had even more customers and capital soared. While shares would drop over the coming years as the war would, you know, duh, pick up again, it remained stable in the mid-80s, as many of the client states that France had subjugated were able to make up a significant portion of the money that was being spent on Napoleon's campaigns. In short, while devastating, war is always good for business. Now, Napoleon was also able to finally enjoy some downtime, visiting his numerous estates, some of which he had never even seen, partaking in activities that would be fitting of any 19th century royal. 
He held lavish banquets to celebrate his victories, and he promoted men of various occupations into a burgeoning noble class that he was crafting in his own image, being cognizant to not have it emulate those of the Ancien Regime or other European monarchies. But hey, different names notwithstanding, Napoleon was fooling no one, and he wanted to form a nobility that could be a powerful, loyal force in keeping him in power, while also acknowledging the individual's contributions to his empire. These titles weren't inherited, they were earned. If you are helping to keep France as the most powerful country in Europe, well, you, sir, can now become a part of my imperial court. Napoleon was also keen to show himself as a man of splendor. And yes, you heard that correctly. Gone was the revolutionary Jacobin who would have swarmed the Bastille had he had the opportunity, and present was the regal emperor who wanted all of France to know just how lavishly their ruler lived. Not to show some sort of overt display of pomposity, Rather, he wanted it to be a demonstration on the ability of the common man. It is important that we all spend and that we dream, because if we do so, perhaps you too can become a man of destiny. Now, Napoleon was careful to cultivate an image of himself as an emperor, yes, but an emperor as a man of the people, who was not out of touch with their everyday lives, and that was important. He was rich and powerful because he earned it, not because he inherited it simply by exiting the birth canal. And indeed, he took great pride in this. He lived like a king, while the real kings of Europe watched as this heathen commoner thrashed them all into submission. Now still, even amongst the luxury, he was a man who came home to throw on his modest military uniform. Essentially like you or I come home after a long day's work just to throw on some sweatpants. He was lavish, yes, but he was also modest. And the French people, well, they loved him for it. Was this the new world order they likely thought... To Napoleon, as well as to the rest of the French, it was an order that they were hoping would last for a thousand years. But I digress, because we're getting ahead of ourselves. Even as Napoleon attended to the matters of state, as well as coming back to check on many of the corrupt senators who had enjoyed his absence, he always had one eye on the rest of Europe. And with Russia, Prussia, and Austria subdued, that eye could firmly look across the channel to the British Isles. Now, ever since Trafalgar, Napoleon knew that the only way he could cripple Britain would be to bring her down economically, his rebuilding navy still years away from being at full fighting capacity, and even when they were ready, they would likely be rendered obsolete by the Royal Navy's constant innovation, experience, and power projection. Now, this is precisely why he created the Continental System to begin with, but as we mentioned in episode 38, there were numerous flaws with the system, and it was basically impossible to prevent the bribery, extortion, and open smuggling that was going on throughout the continent, especially in areas that were hostile to Napoleon, namely Naples, and for the focus of our episode today, Portugal. And with Portugal being the oldest ally of Great Britain, and conveniently located at the mouth of the Eastern Atlantic, it was the perfect conduit through which Britain could not only disrupt the continental system in Europe, but also continue to trade with the majority of the New World as well. Now, Napoleon was well aware of this, famously saying, quote, The greatest damage we could inflict upon English commerce would be to seize upon Portugal. And while Napoleon had long seen Portugal as a thorn in his side in the economic war with Britain, in 1807, the timing was right given that his eastern flank was now secured, as well as what had transpired in Portugal over the previous six decades. And so, before we get into Napoleon's war plans, let's spend some time on a recap of the history of Portugal over the previous millennia or so to set the stage for how they got to where they were in the fall of 1807. Yes, you heard that correctly. Let's do a deep dive into Portuguese history, because, well, why not? 
Now, being one of the oldest countries in Europe, Portugal has been settled, conquered, and fought over for thousands of years, with some evidence showing that humans first arrived in the country over 400,000 years ago. Various Celtic, Iberian, and Germanic tribes have called the Iberian Peninsula home, but Portugal's strategic importance really took off in the later centuries BC, when the Carthaginians established colonies in southern Spain and the eastern edges of Portugal's Algarve region. During the Second Punic War, Rome, who had emerged victorious in the First Punic War, invaded and took swaths of land in Iberia that stretched well into the central Portuguese interior. But the local tribes, known as the Lusitani, put up a fierce resistance and engaged in brutal guerrilla warfare against the Romans, before eventually being conquered, and by the turn of the first century AD, all of Iberia had been incorporated into the Roman Empire as a province full of vital resources. Now, once the Roman Empire began to decline, various Germanic tribes, namely the Suevi and the Visigoths, began to fight for control on the peninsula, with the Visigoths eventually coming out victorious in the 7th century AD. But years of war, disease, and internal strife weakened the Visigoth leadership. And at the end of the 7th century, a growing empire across the Strait of Gibraltar eyed up the declining kingdom, and that was, of course, the Umayyad Caliphate. Now, much like they did to the Levant in North Africa, the Caliphate invaded Spain from modern-day Morocco in 711 AD, and over the course of the next 10 years, conquered nearly the entire Iberian Peninsula, with the lone exception being the Kingdom of Asturias to the north, which was naturally defended by mountains. Now, this proved to be of critical importance because Asturias would become a central hub from which numerous European tribes and countries would come to the aid of the Iberians in their fight against the Muslim rule, a fight which today is known as the Reconquista, and a fight which lasted some 800 years. And to put that into context, the United States is, as of the writing of this episode, only 247 years old. But we'll get into the Reconquista in just a minute. Nevertheless, the Caliphate named the new province Al-Andalus, and it became a hub for science, art, and culture. The Umayyads would be overthrown and replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate in 750, and Iberia then became a semi-autonomous Muslim state known as the Emirate of Cordoba. Now, this decentralization was critical, as it allowed for Christian kingdoms of Europe to aid in the Asturians in their fight to reconquer the peninsula. And while the fight was a slow one, a burgeoning group of smaller Christian states emerged in Iberia as they began to push the Muslims further south to the Strait of Gibraltar. Now, one of these states was Leon Castile, which encompassed much of the northwest corner of the peninsula, and they had a county... Portugal, which was ruled by a Burgundian knight named Henry, Count of Portugal. Now, Henry was invited by the king of Leon Castile, and he married the king's illegitimate daughter, but their son, Alfonso Henriques, began a succession crisis against his now-widowed mother, starting a civil war and emerging victorious. Henriques then declared Portugal to be an independent kingdom in 1139, with himself as its first king, styling himself Alfonso I. Alfonso is probably one of, if not the most important figure in Portuguese history, and he is often labeled as the conqueror or the founder by the country today. Now, the next century or so was spent conquering the rest of the southwest of the Iberian Peninsula, giving Portugal roughly the present shape it has today. With the Muslim Berbers and Moors now beginning to re fully retreat back to Africa, Portugal began to look to the east at their neighbors of Leon and Castile, who were also growing powerful and were eyeing up their former client kingdom from the 12th century. A dynastic crisis at the end of the 14th century led to Castilian claims to the Portuguese thrones, and war broke out between the two countries, 
culminating in the famous Battle of Aljabarata, which guaranteed the Portuguese right to independence and is generally regarded as the most important battle in Portuguese history. Now, this battle is also especially important to our episode today, as it affirmed the close relationship between Portugal and the Kingdom of England. Many English crusaders had been involved in the fights against the Moors in the Reconquista, culminating with the permanent military alliance between the two nations in 1386, known as the Treaty of Windsor. Now, this treaty is still in effect today, some 638 years later as of the recording of this episode. And again, the importance of the Treaty of Windsor cannot be overstated, as it guaranteed the Portuguese their independence from outside powers, i.e. Spain, and also gave the English a close maritime base nearer to the Mediterranean Sea. This guarantee of independence for Portugal, however, would set the stage for what she has become most famous for today, and that is for her role in the Age of Exploration, establishing one of the largest empires in human history. Now, the Battle of Ajabrata led to the formation of the House of Abiz, of whom its first king was Dom Joao I. Now, his fourth son was none other than Prince Henry the Navigator, who pioneered much of the early European exploration on the African coasts. He did this by helping to build a revolutionary new ship, the Caravelle, which allowed crews to now sail against the wind, allowing for sailing at all times rather than just when the wind was most favorable. This meant that the Portuguese could now begin a monopoly on global travel and, subsequently, trade, soon making them one of the richest countries of the day. Famous Portuguese explorers such as Bartolomeu Dias, Vasco da Gama, and Pedro Alves Cabral all used the ships to reach South Africa, India via the Cape of Good Hope, and Brazil, respectively. And after Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue and landed in the Caribbean under the Spanish crown, Portugal and Spain began a competition for global domination of the Old and New Worlds, which culminated in the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, which, essentially, gave Portugal control of African and Asian markets, along with Brazil, and Spain got to keep the Americas. Now, at the time, Portugal really did seem to have benefited greatly from this treaty, as they could now establish permanent naval settlements across this vast swath of land, including those in India, Indonesia, China, and Japan. This is why Portuguese is one of the few languages that is spoken as a national language on every major continent except North America. Now, naturally, this also opened room for wars of competition against the likes of the Ottoman Empire, whose very monopoly on the lucrative spice trade Portugal was now infringing on by bringing the spices directly from the source and in a far faster and more practical way, as well as the Dutch and the Spanish, who were vying for much of the same territory. On a far darker note, though, Portugal was also instrumental in the establishment and proliferation of the transatlantic slave trade. And while chattel slavery today is often identified with the antebellum United States, over 80% of the transatlantic slave trade actually went to the Portuguese colony of Brazil, where lucrative coffee and sugar plantations demanded the need for slave labor. Much of this also increased after the Iberian Union in 1580, when Spain and Portugal were merged following the dynastic crisis after King Sebastian's death while on campaign in Africa. Philip II of Spain also became Philip I of Portugal, due to his mother, Isabella, being a part of the Portuguese monarchy. And while Philip is obviously more well known for the Spanish Armada and being married to Mary I of England, better known as Bloody Mary, for the purpose of our story here, he did allow for Portugal to have a sense of autonomy, as did the successive kings up to Philip IV, who essentially turned Portugal into a province in 1621. Now, this angered most of the Portuguese people, and coupled with the fact that international powers were now looking to carve up their former colonies in Asia and South America, 
Portugal rose up in rebellion in 1640, beginning the 27-long-year Portuguese Restoration War. Portugal would eventually win, and, regaining their independence, would come out on the other side at their territorial zenith, with an empire on which the sun never set. However, just over a century later in 1755, everything would change, and that brings us right up to where we are in our story on Napoleon as he prepares his invasion force. Yes, you heard that correctly. Some 52 years before Napoleon invaded Portugal, his enemy was made that much weaker by the hand of God. On Saturday, November 1st, 1755, All Saints Day as it turned out, Portugal was struck by one of the most powerful earthquakes in recorded history, with the epicenter being about 120 miles or 200 kilometers southwest of the Cape of St. Vincent in the Algarve, at a magnitude of anywhere between 8 to 9.0 on the Richter scale. Now, while the initial quake and aftershocks were destructive enough, it was the resulting tsunami and fires that laid waste to the capital of Lisbon, made even worse by the fact that throngs of people were leaving churches in large numbers, and the quake killed anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 people, depending on various estimates. Now, while the relief efforts were initiated immediately by the royal family, the massive loss of life and the critical infrastructure damage devastated the Portuguese economy, and it was a major blow to their already faltering imperial ambitions. Now, while the earthquake had a major influence on the Enlightenment philosophers of the day, notably Voltaire, it exacerbated political tensions in Portugal. Sebastião José de Carvalho, the Marquis of Pombal, emerged as a leading figure and diminished much of the king's authority and influence in the country, ushering Portugal into the Enlightenment era, but also effectively ruling the country as an autocratic dictator, especially when King Joseph I became slightly insane and claustrophobic following the earthquake. But he was not as insane as his successor, his eldest daughter, Dona Maria I, who ascended to the throne in 1777. Queen Dona Maria I of Portugal was born in 1734 in Lisbon, so she was about 35 years older than Napoleon, from a completely different generation. In 1760, she married her um, paternal uncle, Dom Pedro, who would co-rule with her as King Pedro III, and together they would have three children, throws up in mouth slightly, José, João, and Mariana Victoria. Now initially, Maria was well-liked by the country, seen as a reformer, and she dismissed the Marquis of Pombal. Seeing large economic growth in her early reign, Portugal's prospects nearing the end of the 18th century seemed to be making a positive turn following the devastating 1755 earthquake. But again, tragedy struck in the late 1780s when King Pedro and Crown Prince José died two years apart. Now this left Maria to rule the nation alone, but the deaths of her husband and eldest son drove her into what would nowadays be called clinical depression. In 1792, with the French Revolution in full swing, her sole remaining son, João, would be named Prince Regent to rule Portugal while his mother remained bedridden. Now, João is an interesting character in his own right, but I think the best ways to describe him would be weak, fat, extremely inbred, and, well, oblivious. I mean, Google a picture of King John or João VI of Portugal, and you can see what I mean. Now, his legacy would improve over time, especially in Brazil, but his reputation at the turn of the 18th century further weakened Portugal on the world stage, and by the time Napoleon came to power, she had little in the way of being able to defend herself against her much more powerful neighbors, Spain and France, against a potential invasion. In May of 1801, invade they did. 
Known as the War of the Oranges, then First Consul Napoleon ordered a joint Spanish-French force to invade Portugal after she refused to break her alliance with Great Britain. In a precursor of what was to come, Portugal refused and they were quickly overrun in three weeks by the forces led by French Marshal Laurent de Gavion Sancerre and Spanish General Manuel Rodi. Now remember the latter, he's going to be pretty important for the remainder of this episode. Now, most of the action came in the border regions with Spain, but seeing that they had little chance of success, Joao accepted the peace terms in the Treaty of Badajoz, which ceded small territorial concessions to Spain, while also stating that Portugal would cease relations with Great Britain, though they continued to do so tacitly. Now, as a fun fact nugget, the War of the Oranges gets its name due to the fact that General Godi, during a lull in the fighting, picked oranges in the Portuguese countryside and sent them to Spanish Queen Maria Luisa, who was allegedly his lover, telling her that he would take Lisbon. As a result, the war was called the War of the Oranges. Isn't history just fascinating? Anyway, the War of the Oranges did set the precedent for what was about to come in the Peninsular War, and after Portugal re-established relations with Great Britain following the British victory at Trafalgar, Napoleon continued to harbor a deep-seated hatred towards the small Iberian nation, though matters in Central Europe kept his full attention elsewhere. Following Tilsit, though, his attention could once again turn to tiny, vulnerable, and weak in Portugal. And in the late summer of 1807, he began to draw up his plans to invade the country, this time with the goal of reaching Lisbon and taking it. Now, as I mentioned, Napoleon sent word to Joao in July of 1807 that if he did not close his ports to British shipping and abide by the continental system, he would, along with the assistance of his Spanish allies, use force to make them comply. He set a deadline of September 1st, but Napoleon began to drop his invasion plans anyway, and he sent word to King Charles IV of Spain of his intentions. Now, Charles and Napoleon had always had a uh, complicated relationship, and the two were very suspicious of the other for good reason. Having said that, I don't want to delve too deep into the relationship in this episode because, well, Napoleon is going to have quite a lot to say about the Spanish throne in less than a year. But for the purpose of this episode, they were still nominally allies, and they began to discuss the invasion, and after it inevitably succeeded, how they would divide Portugal up amongst the winning parties. On August 1st, Napoleon tapped the man who would lead the French and Spanish armies in the invasion, General Division Jean-Anduch Junot. Born and raised in Burgundy, in 1807, Junot was in his second stint as military governor of Paris and he had served on campaign with Napoleon in the Egyptian and Austerlitz campaigns, but this was the first time he'd assumed overall command of an invasion force. Commanding what was called the First Corps of the Gironde Army of Observation, Junot's forces of around 25,000 men were already gathering in the Basque country on the border with Spain when Napoleon gave his final warning to Joao on August 12th. His orders were ironclad. Portugal needed to declare war on Great Britain, arrest any and all of her citizens residing within Portugal, and surrender the Portuguese navy over to the French and Spanish fleets. When Joao refused to seize British merchants and their goods, Napoleon formally expelled the Portuguese ambassador and informed them of his intentions to remove Joao and his house of Braganza from the throne. Now that same day, the French also invaded the kingdom of Etruria in modern-day Tuscany, as they too were violating the continental system and allowing a safe haven for British smugglers. He informed the ruling monarch, Infanta Maria Luisa, of his intentions to take over her kingdom, as well as exile her. But since she was the daughter of King Charles of Spain, he decided to cut her a deal and give her a large chunk of Portugal as her personal fiefdom. 
Now, this was all agreed to in October of 1807, when the secret treaty of Fontainebleau was signed between Spain, France, and Maria Luisa. Luisa would get the northwest corner of Portugal. General Gaudí, who would be leading the Spanish invasion forces, would receive what is today the Algarve and the Alentejo, and the rest of the country's interior, along with the capital Lisbon, would remain in abeyance until a later decision was made, but it was nominally under French control. Now, the reasons for why Napoleon agreed to this treaty are somewhat debated, especially since, well, he didn't really need to give up much in order to appease Maria Luisa or King Charles. No, it's more likely that Napoleon did this to offer free passage for his troops into Spain, have them sketch out the roadworks, and then, ultimately, invade them as well. It was all very calculated, and indeed, he did order Junot's engineers to map out every road from which they traveled, making sure to take notes on strategic bridges, supply depots, and military fortifications. And incredibly, when the French finally marched into Spain by crossing the Bedosa River in northeast Spain, they were led by Spanish navigators and Godoy himself, completely oblivious to what the French were doing. But even if Godoy wasn't ignorant to the fact that the French were basically scoping out his country for an occupation force, he probably would have complied anyway. Because Godoy, you see, he was a man of opportunity. Now, I already mentioned how he likely had an affair with Queen Maria Luisa, not of Etruria, but of Spain, Queen Maria Luisa's mother. But Godoy was also a man who enjoyed the finer things in life, something which paired nicely with his ever-present pomposity. As an example, he styled himself the Prince of Peace, which was also an official title, for the peace he negotiated between France and Spain in the War of the First Coalition in 1795. And as he got ready to join Junot in invading Portugal, he dreamed of having more, perhaps even becoming king of Spain, because in 1807, the Bourbons were not exactly the most popular lot of the royal bunch. Godoy figured that if he allied himself with Napoleon, perhaps that could happen, especially since the current heir to the Spanish throne, Ferdinand, hated Godoy. But you see, Napoleon also detested Godoy. In letters to his brothers, he wrote openly of the grotesque nature of his moral fiber, as well as his pompous attitude, something which Napoleon believed he neither earned nor deserved. He wanted to merely use him as a way to get his troops into Portugal, eliminate their threat to his trade embargo, and then turn his attention back to Spain, which, sorry Portugal, was the real prize. Because it's not just Spain and Portugal you conquer. Remember, it is also their vast overseas territories. Overseas territories that have vital resources that were needed back on the continent since the British were basically blockading all French ports. Conquer Iberia, and France had a direct route to the Atlantic Ocean, as well as the Americas. Napoleon was always trying to be one step ahead. Now, we'll get back to Spain and their political situation next episode, but for the moment, France and Spain were buddy-buddy and nearing the Portuguese border in early November. On November 12th, Napoleon wrote to Junot and ordered him to hurry and change his route to Portugal, fearing that the British would try and land an invasion force to intercept them. And despite needing to trek through the harsh and sparsely populated Spanish frontier, Junot's force crossed the border into Portugal on November 19th, and they began to follow the Tagus River, which emptied into the Atlantic Ocean at Lisbon. Now, initially, Joao urged caution and didn't really believe that the French would try to depose him. But to try to ingratiate himself with Napoleon, Joao arrested as many British merchants as the Portuguese officials could find, and he did declare war on Great Britain. Napoleon was unfazed, and he ordered the invasion to continue. And at this point, the Portuguese court weighed their options, but given the state of the roads and the limited time they had to prepare, Joao decided against mobilizing his army or the local militias. 
Now, this meant that the French and the Spanish forces' only true enemy was the Portuguese geography, which was indeed brutal. In fact, nearly a week in, the French and the Spanish were stationed at Abranche, only 60 miles west of the Spanish border and still 75 miles outside of Lisbon, when they were approached by Portuguese diplomats who frantically tried to halt the invasion. Junot, seeing how sorry a state the Portuguese state was in, decided to send only his best units to Lisbon, with the rest of the armies following slowly behind. Junot's thinking was that the smaller, more experienced force could move faster and incur fewer casualties should they encounter any resistance, though, as we'll see, they encountered none. Now, the royal family was faced with a harrowing decision. Stay in Lisbon and accept harsh conditions, or flee the country. João, the dithering glutton that he was, decided on the latter, and on November 29th, the royal family gathered an armada, hastily boarded a ship with the majority of their belongings, and set sail for Brazil, where they would rule in absentia for 13 and a half years. They left in such a rush that they actually left numerous chests full of valuables on the docks, and as they hauled anchor, the crowds jeered at their perceived desertion. It was official. The prince had given their country away to the enemy. The next day, November 30th, nearly two weeks after they crossed into Portugal, Junot and a small squadron of 1,500 men in ragged, wet uniforms marched into Lisbon unopposed. One of the oldest cities in Europe fell without a single shot being fired. The rest of the army followed in the next 10 days, and the occupation of Portugal began. Now, as far as occupations go, the French occupation of Portugal wasn't exactly Nazi Germany and France. Junot did try to instill French principles of liberty, equality, and brotherhood in the country, and he did declare religious freedom for minority faiths. But that doesn't mean that they were popular. The Portuguese hated that their royal family, one of the last true absolute monarchies in Europe, abandoned them in one of their darkest hours, and they hated more that it was Napoleon who took them over. Riots broke out when the French flag began to fly over Lisbon, and acts of sabotage began almost immediately. Junot disbanded much of the Portuguese army as soon as the occupation began, retiring any service members who had accrued six or more years of service and sending those who hadn't to Germany to patrol the northern provinces. This meant that the Portuguese people were on their own against the French, who truly had them under their yoke. Napoleon then further instigated the local population by imposing a 100 million franc indemnity on the nation. But when most of the hard specie was taken to Brazil by the royal family, and it was clear that it, well, couldn't be taken, additional taxes were imposed on the public, and you can imagine how well that went over. As chaos broke out, Junot began to order his troops to execute anyone who dared threaten insurrection, and at the end of 1807, Portugal, whose leaders had all fled to Brazil, was fully pacified. Now, the invasion of Portugal was about as easy an operation as Napoleon could have hoped for, and it was done at the cost of few, if any, casualties. Now, at the time, it appeared as though it was an overwhelming victory. But over the next eight years, it would become apparent it was a Pyrrhic one. Because, as we know, Portugal would not be the end for Napoleon and the French in Iberia. Oh no, it was only the beginning. Because now, with Portugal subdued, Napoleon could finally turn his attention back to his southern neighbor. And next episode, we'll get into the events that sparked the invasion of Portugal into the wider Peninsula War. <laughs>